All right. Thank you, Jesus. Great morning. Thank you, Jesus, for the way you're speaking to us and moving in our hearts. We pray that you would continue to move and help us to be open to it and listening and ready to move in response to what you're saying to us. We commit to you. We'll, we'll change whatever you need us to change. We'll get out of the way. We just want you to move. We want to respond. We're hungry to be obedient to you. Help us in that. Help us in that. Whatever it is, help us to be obedient. Empower it in us because we can't do it on our own. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask my friend Chris to stand up for a moment. Dr. Christopher Clark. Let's give it up for Chris. Chris is a key leader in our church. We're so thankful for him and the different ways that he leads and serves here in the church. And uh, he's going to be leading us in a very important conversation this week. Uh, This week on Thursday, April 6th at 7 p.m., At the North Carolina Study Center, we are holding the AND Forum, which is a conversation designed for us to explore the ways in which our faith in Jesus Christ influences, impacts, shapes every single corner of our lives. It speaks into every part of who we are and every part of the world and the culture around us. And so what we do in these AND Forums is we have an opportunity to talk talk about faith and Issues that often are beneath the surface in church conversations. And we want to we bring them up to the surface and talk about these important things that need to be talked about and need to be discussed. and need to be, We need to dialogue together so that we can learn and we can grow. Last year we talked about faith and depression. And this year Chris is going to lead us in a conversation on faith and race. He's a professor at UNC in the political science department. He's done a lot of research. He's going to talk from his own personal experience, his personal testimony, and also talk from the expertise of the research that he's done. And there'll be a time for question and answer as well. So really encourage you to come and be a part of that. All right, I'm going to ask somebody else to stand up now. I'm going to ask my friend Robert to stand up. Stand up, Robert. All right. Now, you guys know Robert. He is the prayer warrior of Franklin Street, all right? He carries around a notebook with many of your names in it, and he prays over many of you every single day. And if you don't think you're in his notebook, then go see him today and get your name on the list, all right? This week, Robert sent me a text that he had just prayed with Kennedy Meeks. (laughs) He prayed for Kennedy Meeks. Kennedy Meeks had like 25 points last night. And the rebound to win the game. It was amazing. I love I love the way everybody just went and hugged Kennedy after the game. I wanted to hug him too. That was awesome. So you're the man, Robert. All right, y'all get Robert to pray for you, okay? Awesome. Great. And then I want to ask one more other person to stand up. I want to ask Roy Williams to stand up. We've got him with us in the audience today. Yeah, give it up for Coach Roy. Woo! That's my dad, all right? <laughs> Woo! Y'all tell everybody Roy was here today. 
All right. Awesome. What is greatness? How would you define greatness? The GOAT, the greatest of all time, Michael Jordan? I don't know. That's what I think of, all right? Some position, some role, some accomplishment. Who do you think of and what do you think of when you hear the term greatness? What does that look like? Of Jesus? Awesome, Miss Carolyn. That's right. Well, you done. You beat me to the punch, all right? <laughs> awesome. That's exactly right. Uh, yesterday, uh, I decided at the last minute to jump into this 5K run, okay? Mainly because Sarah heard about it, and she was like, oh, there's this 5K right next door. You should do this. That sounds like something you would enjoy. And I'm thinking, no, it doesn't sound like something I would enjoy. <laughs> We've been married for 14 years, and I'm still, you know, do whatever I can to try to impress my wife, like when you're first dating, right? So I'm like, oh, yeah, totally. I would love that. I'm going to do it, all right? So I decided to do this, and uh, my, my two sons, Sam and Luke, they're really encouraging, but Sam was, was really deeply concerned that I was going to come in last place. <laughs> so once I finally convinced him there was no possible way for me to come in first, then he really didn't want me to come in last. He even prayed about it the night before. And that was the last thing he said as I went out the door. All right, Dad, don't come in last. <laughs> Thanks, son. All right. I was like targeting the elderly, like, I'm going to beat you, all right? (laughs) Came in next to last. Awesome. (laughs) Greatness, but we have this fear of being in that last place, right? We all kind of have that sense. It's like, I just don't want to be last. What does great, how is greatness defined in your mind? So many times we define it as pushing ourselves to the front, being at the top of the pyramid, being in the front of the line. We never think about it in terms of being in last place. That's the place you want to avoid. Well, listen to what Jesus says in the book of Matthew chapter 20. We're going to look at verses 20 through 28 and look at the way that Jesus radically redefines the concept of greatness when it comes to the economy of the kingdom of God. Here's what he says. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. Zebedee's sons, this is James and John, two of the first disciples called, the two brothers that Jesus first calls uh, who are out fishing. They're fishermen, he calls them to be disciples. So then their mother comes and asks Jesus for a favor. What is it that you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Jesus said, you don't know what you are asking. You don't know what you are asking. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or It's not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, imagine being among the ten after that. When they heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, those who are not Jewish, the the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. 
Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, help us today. Holy Spirit, help us. And speak these words clearly to us. These are your words. Speak them to us. It's your name we pray. Amen. So here's what we're going to do. We're just going to walk through this passage piece by piece and take this little by little here. We're going to start with the mother's request. All right? The mother's request. So uh, scholars, most scholars believe that the disciples, many of the disciples and these two disciples were probably teenagers when Jesus first calls them to be followers of him. So what we have here is the first recorded moment in history where a mother embarrasses her teenage sons. All right, right here in the Bible, okay? There it is. She comes and she asks this question. She's like, can you please elevate my sons to this place next to you, to the right and to the left? This is the same story that we have seen playing out since the beginning of time, since the fall. This is the same story as the fall playing out all over again. Here they are in relationship with Jesus, in intimate relationship with Jesus. But that wasn't enough for them. They wanted to be elevated to a different place. They wanted to be elevated to this right and left. They wanted to be next to him and to be brought into this place of equality with him. That's the same thing that got us in trouble in the first place. That moment of pride where the enemy whispers to us, listen, yeah, you've got relationship with him. You've got harmony with him. But I think you should be seated a little bit higher than where you're at right now. Maybe you need to reach a little bit more. Maybe you need to make something of yourself. Maybe you need to reach just a little bit more. They listen to this whisper, the same thing that's been whispered to the human heart since the moment we fell in the garden. They come to Jesus and, and we can see that they have at least some concept of who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do. We give them credit for this statement that they make. We want to be placed at the right and the left in your kingdom. In your kingdom. So they understand that Jesus is in fact a king. Okay, in the Jewish mindset, this this uh, through scripture, Jesus is referred to as the Christ and the Messiah. One is a Greek word. One is a Hebrew word. They both mean the same thing. They both mean anointed one. And in their imagery and in their mindset, this meant the role of the king, the future king of Israel who would come and restore Israel to its glory, to be a king in the line of David and in the spirit of David, a great king like David was and bring Israel back to that place of greatness. And so that's what they were expecting. That's what they were hoping for. They recognized that he was a king, but they did not grasp exactly what kind of kingdom Jesus had come to establish. Had no clue about what kind of kingdom Jesus had come to establish. And the reality is neither do we. See, at least they were on the front side of the story and they hadn't seen the way it completely played out yet. You and I are on the back side of the story. We know exactly what happens in the narrative of Jesus and we still don't get it. And we still want him to advance our own agendas instead of surrendering ourselves to his. 
There's only one disciple. There's only one disciple in the New Testament whose strategy plays out the way he planned it. There's only one disciple who gets to advance the agenda he had in his heart and in his mind and sees it play all the way through, and that's Judas. We still don't get it. We're on this side of the story, but we still want to push our own agenda instead of being surrendered to him. Jesus comes back and he says, you have no idea what it is that you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Now, that word cup, in the cultural context, it had to do with the trials that they were going to face, had, had to do with the fate and the future that was waiting ahead of them. Can you drink the cup that I've been given that I am going to have to drink from? Of course, we understand that Jesus is talking about the cross. In their mindset, they're probably thinking the imagery of David and the king's throne. As, Jesus, as David talks in Psalm 23, my cup overflows and surely goodness and mercy will follow me to the ends of my days. And they're like, yes, I want to drink from that cup. I want to drink from the overflowing cup of the king. Yeah, we can do it, Jesus. We can handle this. But as we know, Jesus himself refers to the crucifixion as the cup from which he has to drink when he's in the garden the night before. And he prays, Father, let this cup pass from me. If there's any way, let it pass. Yet not my will, but your will be done. That act of surrender, of embracing the cup that we're called to embrace God's agenda above our own. There will be people who are on Jesus's right and on his left in that moment when Jesus comes into his kingdom. In that moment when Jesus fulfills his mission of why he came. In that moment in which Jesus is elevated, there are people seated to his right and to his left. There are two thieves who are crucified on either side of him. That's the moment when Jesus comes into his kingdom. When that mission is completed. When Jesus says, it is finished. When the crown is placed on his head. They have no clue what they're asking. They have no clue what they're asking. Here's the thing. When it comes to leadership, we're always anticipating what we're going to get instead of what we're going to have to give. When it comes to leadership, we're always thinking through the lens of reward instead of through the lens of the, of the cost. But Jesus is saying to them, listen, you have to understand what this is going to cost. Here we are in Matthew chapter 20, and he's hitting hard on this because in Matthew chapter 21, we've got the triumphal entry where Jesus comes, and, and we're going to celebrate that next week, where Jesus comes through the middle of the city, and the people are crowning him as the king of the Jews, and the, the, the disciples are completely caught up in the emotion of that. They're completely swept up in it. But, but as the week goes on, five days later, Jesus is crucified. And as the week goes on, it turns on them so fast and they enter into the darkest week of their entire lives. Jesus is trying to prepare them for what it's going to cost them. He says, listen, you don't understand what my cup is. My cup is not a crown and my cup is not a throne my cup is a cross and my cup is a yoke. They don't get it yet. One of these two brothers, John, he will get it later. And decades later, he writes down 
the revelation, the last book of the Bible. He writes down the revelation as he gets this glimpse into the throne room of heaven. And there are people around around the throne of God wearing crowns. But what he sees is those people who are closest to the throne, who are encircling the throne. They take the crowns off of their heads and they lay them at the feet of God. That's what it looks like. That's the reality. Ours is not a crown and a throne. It's a cross and a yoke. And any crown that we get is going to be tossed off of us and thrown at the feet of God. Once we're able to see clearly. They said, we can drink of it, Jesus. Trust us. We can do this. And Jesus says, you will drink of it. Indeed, you will. And it turns out to be true. James is the first of the disciples to be martyred for Jesus. He's not the first Christian martyr. Stephen is the first Christian martyr. But James is the first of the apostles, the first of those disciples, the 12, to be martyred for the cause of Jesus. He does drink the cup on the other side of the crucifixion. And and as history and tradition tells us, John is probably the last. Isn't that interesting? James, the first of the apostles to die for Jesus. John, probably the last to give his life for the cause of Jesus. Of Christ, They do indeed drink the cup. As it goes on, it says, when the ten heard about this, they were indignant. They were indignant. I don't know if the disciples had like a break room at disciple headquarters that they hung out in. I don't know. But can you imagine how tense it was, you know, among them, how thick that tension was when they heard about this, how upset they were when they heard about this power play from James and John. Man, they were not happy. A uh, quick question, who, who do you think besides Jesus, all right, we're going to eliminate Jesus from being the possible answer. He's always the answer, all right, <laughs> except on your math test. I tried that once, didn't work, okay? Um, but not Jesus. Besides Jesus, who would you say is the leader of the apostles, of the disciples? Peter, exactly. That's the first, mind that, the first name that jumps into mind, right? Peter. And in fact, Peter was. He was right there with Jesus. Jesus had an inner circle, all right? Among the 12, he had an inner circle of three that were the closest to him. And time and time again, he would be going on a journey and and some of them would stay behind and he would take those three with him into a deeper place, okay? And Peter was one of the three. The other two of the three, James and John. James and John were already in the inner circle. And do you see what they're doing here? They're trying to cut Peter out of that place of leadership. They see that Peter is kind of a threat to their place of leadership and a threat to their influence and their authority. And they're trying to make this move to go around Peter. Go over the top of Peter straight to Jesus, right? It's like, you don't really need, let's, let's kind of like trim this down. Like, like, let's get more streamlined with our leadership structure here, Jesus. Probably don't need Peter. He's a loud mouth. He kind of flies off the handle sometimes. Put us at your right and your left. And they are intentionally moving in and cutting him out. They were already in the inner circle, but it wasn't enough for them. They wanted more than intimacy with Jesus. They already had intimacy with Jesus. They wanted more than that. They wanted influence. They wanted more than proximity to Jesus. They wanted power over the other disciples. It wasn't really about their relationship to Jesus. It was more about their relationship over the other disciples. That's what they're trying to do 
in this moment. They didn't want the position in order to be closer to Jesus. They just wanted to be over the others. And it reveals that even though they were next to Jesus, they were distant from his heart. They were distant from his heart. They still didn't get it. And I love what Jesus does here in this incredible moment. The wise teacher, he calls them together and he confronts this right up front with the whole group. He knows about what they've done and he knows how how angry the rest of them are. And he pulls them together in this wise teacher and he confronts it. And this is what he does over and over again with us too. He confronts those things in our lives and he puts it right in front of us and he makes us face our failures and he makes us face our struggles and he makes us face with honesty our trials and our temptations and he calls those out. But he does it for the purpose of challenging us toward growth. And and he invites us into repentance so that we can continue to move into transformation. He's a wise teacher. And he's a kind teacher, but he's a straightforward teacher like that. Then he goes into this key statement that he makes. If you want to be great, then you must be a servant. If you want to be first, then you must be a slave. If you want to be great, you must be a servant. If you want to be first, then you must be a slave. This wisdom from Jesus envisions a counterintuitive path. To greatness. Who would have cooked this up? Who would have thought of this? No. He completely turns it on its head. It denies and it subverts the pyramid organizational chart of hierarchy that concentrates all of the greatness up towards the top. And instead, he says greatness is at the bottom rung of the ladder. Now, don't get this wrong, okay? What Jesus is saying here, he's not saying that we should hold back or we should aim low. Or we should settle for mediocrity in our work or our dreams or our creativity. He's not saying that. Don't get that messed up and backwards. He's not saying that at all. It doesn't mean that we can't hold positions of leadership. It doesn't mean that we can't receive titles of influence or recognition for distinguished accomplishments. It does not mean that. Because what Jesus is critiquing here is not the outcome. What Jesus is critiquing is the motivation. He's not talking about where it ends up. He's talking about where it starts out. And that's what God is always concerned about with us. He's continually going back to the root of the issue and making sure that the seed is right so that what grows up is a reflection of him. It's not about the outcome. It's about the motivation. So he challenges us to remember that it's not about us and it's not for us. It's not about us and it's not for us. Instead, A kingdom motivation is this. It's twofold. Number one, it's for the glory of God. Above everything else, it's for the glory of God. And number two, it's for the sake of others. So that dream that God has given you, that place where he's put you to flourish, the work that he's given you to do, it's not that you should aim low or hold back. Don't. Keep going. Put your whole self into it. But remember your motivation is for the sake of of others, and first of all, it's for the glory of God. That's the root. He, he, he critiques the root instead of the outcome because even if we have the right outcome, we might start from the wrong motivation. Even with serving others, we might start from a wrong motivation. I can remember when I was in seminary, 
This was probably almost 10 years ago now. Um, I was in seminary in this little town called Wilmore, Kentucky, which is outside of Lexington, Kentucky, home of the Kentucky Wildcats, and we beat last week. Thank you, Luke, man. <laughs> hey, thank you. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm in seminary, and I'm driving down the road, and I see this car pulled over on the side of the road, and this person who is having car trouble, and something in me, there's this tug that I should stop. Okay, there's this tug that I should stop and help. And I try to reason with the Holy Spirit and say, do you know me? Like, I'm the last person that they want helping with their car. All right, I can hang out with them while they call AAA, but I can't help, right? But I feel this tug that I should stop and help. And so I listened, and I pulled over, and I stopped, and I got out. And as I'm walking back to this person's car, I'm, you know, having this conversation with the Holy Spirit. I'm like, I don't know what I can do to help, but okay, if you, if you want me to. And I can remember the moment where that conversation and where what was happening in my heart shifted. I can remember when there was a change. It's when the guy who was stopped on the side of the road trying to fix his car turned around and I saw who it was. And I recognized him as one of my seminary classmates. Not just any seminary classmate, but a really respected one. Somebody that people love because of his intellect, but also because of just his character. This is somebody that everybody loved. And I can remember what happened in my heart. This is humiliating. This is embarrassing. This is not a story that I'm proud to share. But I can remember what happened in my heart when he turned around and I saw who it was. That sense of obedience shifted into this sense of pride and this sense of joy. And in a split second, What had first been about this person suddenly became about me. And I can remember the the, the map laid out in my heart of where I'm like, oh, man, this guy, everybody loves him. Everybody respects him. He might tell somebody else that I did this. And they're going to love that I did this. Oh, man, I'm so glad I stopped. That's messed up, (laughs) y'all. That's twisted. That's messed up. It's not about the outcome. It's about the motivation. And he's constantly going to critique us on that. He's constantly going to challenge us on the root, on where it's coming from. Even serving can become about us. Even serving can become about us. It's for the glory of God, and it's for the sake of others. Write down these two words. If you're taking notes today, write down these two words and hold on to these two words. Position. And posture. Position and posture. I had a friend about a year ago spoke these two words to me. And I've held on to them for a year. And the Holy Spirit continues to use them to challenge me in my life. Position and posture. Here's the deal. In the world, leadership is defined by position. In the kingdom, leadership is defined by posture. What kind of position did Jesus hold? None. Exactly. That's the right answer. Uh, None. (laughs) It's awesome, Rush. None. He didn't hold a position. What kind of posture did Jesus take? Servant. Exactly, Jim Lord. It's completely different. 
Jesus held no position of influence, but he lived in this posture of servanthood. Walk through the Gospels and examine his posture towards the outcast. Examine his posture towards those caught up in sexual sin. Examine his posture towards those who were pushed to the outside because they were seen as unclean and unwanted. Think about his posture towards the people who were most in need. Think about his posture towards the people that he was leading. Think about his posture towards the most forgotten. The Gospels are more than a collected sayings of some wise sage that we can memorize these catchy quotes and throw them out every once in a while. They're way more than that. The Gospels are a narrative. And they're designed to be a narrative because they're more about just the teachings of Jesus, but they show us the ways in which he lives this out in his everyday life. And time and time again, we see him not just saying this, but living this. We see it in his posture, in the way that he lives every single day. The Gospels are a narrative, and they take these the world's most impractical ideas that Jesus speaks And it shows us the practical applications of how these actually play out in our lives. And we see Jesus with these same disciples around the table on his last night with him. And he gets down on his knees and his hands and he takes the towel and he washes their feet. A position that was reserved not just for a servant, but a position that was reserved for a slave. In that context, if you were Jewish, you weren't allowed to have that position. That was reserved for a slave who who was not a part of the Jewish people. And Jesus took on that posture of a servant. And more than a servant, he took on the posture of a slave. He shows us, he speaks these impractical ideas. But then he shows us in practical reality what they look like when they play out. And he says this, I didn't come To be served, I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. That word ransom is an economic term. It's an economic term, and and what it means is this. It's the amount of money set to buy back a slave. It's the price for purchasing the freedom of a slave. And Jesus says, I came to become a slave so that I could be the purchase price to buy you out of slavery to set you free from the slavery of sin, but then to invite you into this enslaving freedom of the gospel of Jesus. Paul describes it as as the joy and rejoicing of being in chains for the cause of Christ. I'm a slave to the gospel, he says. And I'm a slave for Christ. I'm a slave to the kingdom. And I'm a servant to the people around me. This is what Jesus says. This is how he describes himself. Isaiah 53. Go and read that. Just soak in that prophecy hundreds of years before that describes the coming Messiah as a suffering servant. Not a conquering king, a suffering servant who then becomes a conquering king on the other side of it. I want to challenge you with this today. You guys got a napkin? There should be a napkin in your cup holder. Some of you already used it for your bagel. (laughs) That's all right. Just kind of unfold it, brush off the crumbs, all right? Some of the world's most revolutionary ideas have started on a napkin. 
Can I get an amen? Who else likes to sketch their ideas out on a napkin? I love doing that. Awesome. When we were first starting this church, so, so many times I would be meeting with people and they would ask me the vision. I'm like, can I borrow your napkin? <laughs> Draw it out for them, all right? I love it. So many great things were born on the napkin, and what was born on the napkin leads to greatness. Aaron Sorkin is one of my favorite writers. Any Aaron Sorkin fans in the house? All right, one, all two, awesome, great. Aaron Sorkin is the writer of the TV show West Wing, which is the greatest TV show in history, all right? But he started his first his first play he ever wrote was a play called A Few Good Men, which was then later made into a movie. And he first started writing that on napkins while he was at a job at the theater. And he starts sketching it out. Harry Potter fans, where are you at? Yes. Okay, now we're awake. J.K. Rowling started to sketch out her first ideas for the Harry Potter story on a napkin. Pixar. Pixar fans in the house. Yeah, all right, awesome. Great. Pixar had just come out with the movie Toy Story, or they were about to release the movie Toy Story, and they were like, oh man, we got nothing to follow up. What are we going to do next? They went to lunch. The, the, some of the brain trust went to lunch. They took a napkin, and they started sketching out stories that they would follow up with that produced A Bug's Life, WALL-E, Monsters, Inc., and Finding Nemo, all born on the same napkin. That's a billion-dollar napkin, y'all. <laughs> Don't throw that away, all right? Shark Week. Shark Week. First designed on a napkin. True story. The technology behind the MRI. First sketched out. The ideas first sketched out on a napkin. Things are born on a napkin, and then they go on to produce greatness. Here's what I want to challenge you to do today. I want you to take your napkin, and I want you to write a name on it of an actual person that you're going to serve this week. This week. I'm not talking about conceptual, oh, uh, this group of people. Nope, a person. An actual person. Write their name on this napkin. And then I want you to write exactly what you're going to do to serve them. The specifics of it. Who are you going to serve and how are you going to do it? Write it down on the napkin. And that small, simple thing, Jesus says that when you put it into action, it will become greatness. What gets born on the napkin this morning will become greatness. Here's the challenge of Jesus. Don't worry about your position in the kingdom. It's about your posture. What is your posture towards others? What is your posture? And then this last challenge, go And be great. Go and be great by becoming a servant. Go and be first by becoming a slave. Go and be great for the glory of God and for the sake of others. Jesus, thank you for the challenge of your revolutionary words. Your revolutionary ideas that continue to go against the grain of everything that we think. Of everything that we would naturally lean towards. continue to challenge us with the revolutionary way of the kingdom of God. Show us what it looks like. Push us and challenge us 
and these things that we sketch out on the napkin, we give them to you. We commit them to you and we ask for you to turn them into greatness in your eyes. You said that John the Baptist was one of the greatest in the kingdom and we can't help but remember his mantra, I must become less so that he can become more. Help us to live by that. Help us to live in a posture that looks like you. It's your name we pray. Amen.